everyone. This is Hannah Langdell, Whitney Lane, and Nick Olick on The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today we'll be continuing our Flapcast series where we do a deep dive into common flaps used in plastic surgery. Each episode features an in-depth discussion with an expert attending plastic surgeon, highlighting preoperative planning, key dissection steps, and technical pearls. Today we're joined by our very own Dr. Jeff Marcus. As Hannah said, today we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Jeff Marcus. He is a professor of surgery and chief of the Division of Plastic Surgery here at Duke. Dr. Marcus completed his plastic surgery residency at Northwestern University in Chicago, followed by fellowship in pediatric plastic surgery and craniofacial surgery at the University of Toronto Hospital for Sick Kids. Uh, he is a past president of the Rhinoplasty Society and was recently named one of the top rhinoplasty surgeons in the United States. Dr. Marcus is an outstanding surgeon, teacher, and leader, and we are thrilled to welcome him to the Resident Review Flapcast uh, to discuss the forehead flap. And I'll just say, side note, Whitney and I are the uh, the current CMF team, so we just had a lovely day with Dr. Marcus uh, in the operating room doing alveolar bone grafting, so an expert in uh, cleft lip and palate as well, but today we will shift gears and uh, be discussing the forehead flap. Thanks for such a great intro. Everybody gets to keep their job. Oh, yes. <laughs> thank, thank you guys for doing this and, uh, and for inviting me to come on. I think you're doing a great job. And um, the, uh, the podcast is really doing well. You're doing a great work. So to get our discussion started, we're going to start with a little bit of review of the anatomy of the paramedian forehead flap. To start, we actually are going to talk about a little bit of the history of the flap. It is one of the oldest described surgical procedures in plastic surgery. Its earliest description was in an ancient Indian text dating back to 600 BC. Um, the technique was slightly lost during the intervening time. However, it again gained popularity in the early 1800s and was further refined by Dr. Gillies during World War I. So the paramedian forehead flap has really stood the test of time as a mainstay of reconstruction of large multi-layer defects of the distal third of the nose. This is really uh, due to the fact that it is a robust flap with a reliable vascular pedicle. It is easily harvested uh, with an acceptable donor site. And finally, it is a near perfect skin match for the nose. Nick, uh, can you start by taking us some, uh, through some of the regional vascular anatomy? Sure. So uh, when we think about the blood supply to the forehead, a uh, couple of uh, vessels we think about, the supraorbital, supratrochlear, superficial temporal, the dorsal nasal, and the facial or angular vessel. Uh, these vessels uh, run in the subcutaneous plane in the forehead and the scalp. Then we think specifically more about the paramean forehead flap. Uh, the blood supply to our flap is the supratrochlear artery and vein. Um, Hannah, can you tell us about the anatomic course of our pedicle? Of course. So the supratrochlear artery is a terminal branch of the ophthalmic artery. It emerges at the superior nasal aspect of the orbit, medial to the supraorbital artery and it divides into a superficial and a deep branch. About two centimeters above the superior orbital rim, the superficial branch pierces the underside of the frontalis to run in a subcutaneous plane, and it eventually terminates into multiple small branches near the hairline. Uh, Nick, do you know how we can identify the location of the supratrochlear artery relative to the midline? 
So the uh, the artery is typically one and a half to two centimeters lateral to the midline and usually one centimeter superior to the brow. And you can identify this in most cases with a Doppler. Now we're going to be bringing in our expert, Dr. Marcus, to share his thoughts and expertise on the forehead flap. To start, Dr. Marcus, uh, we just wanted to ask you some of your general thoughts on the forehead flap, specifically its utility in your practice and what um, patients do you typically think of when you first see them? Uh, what defects do you think of to use the uh, paramedian forehead flap then? I, I, well, on this one, I think that, you know, definitely if you talk to different people, you'll come to some different answers about, you know, how frequently they'll use it for what defects. Um, and usually what you're talking about is the size. And so um, probably some, there are some people probably have a lower threshold to do a forehead flap for a defect that other people may be willing to try some other types of flaps for. Um, and they're not wrong. There's not a right and wrong on there. Um, I think that the most obvious thing for most people is that when you have a subtotal or total nasal reconstruction, it's the, it's the flap of choice. There's nothing else that does that well from the point of view of like an in their in-service exam, um, and that kind of thing, you know, the only other answer I've ever seen come up when someone's asked for an alternative was something called a jury flap, um, which to be honest with you is, you know, mostly for historical, um, knowledge anyway, but, but I did see that on, uh, see it on the exam. It's one of the few things that can do a total nasal reconstruction other than the taglia cotzi, you know, the, um, uh, uh, arm flap. And so, um, you know, it's so unique. Um, it's, it's, it's really the one thing that can do uh, a total nasal reconstruction. The, the problem you could end up in is if you have somebody whose forehead's been burned by whatever thing, process trauma, prior surgery or whatever. And so if you don't have it available, that's when you can get in a situation where you're thinking about what, what else is there? So, uh, for me, it's going to be in a subtotal or total. Um, if it's going to be a partial nose situation, um, I would prefer to do it for something that's going to be the dorsal subunit, um, lateral, you know, sub, perhaps dorsum, lateral, you know, sidewall subunit plus the, you know, plus the tip, like sort of that, you know, elongated, um, an oblong flap, even, even including columella. So, or it could be lower third, like tip and columella. So things, I like it for things that are on the midline, um, rather than trying to get it to come off obliquely. That said, that doesn't mean I wouldn't do it for something that's like one side only. So a hemi nose, like, so I have, you know, an, I have a child who had a horrendous dog bite and he's he lost half of his nose. Um, so essentially it's, you know, it's an, it's half, you know, one full side of it. Well, I mean, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and you know, he's, he's getting older and that that's a whole nother story about like, you know, at what age do you do a pediatric, uh, forehead flap? So in that instance, um, you know, it's the best, it'll be the best choice for him. But, uh, I guess my point is subtotal total, and then, uh, midline types of things like dorsum tip and columella. Thank you for those, you know, kind of indications, um, other than someone where that, that, flap is not available because of a prior injury or a burn or something. Are there any contraindications in terms of medical comorbidities? You mentioned that it, this is something you will do in children if, if necessary, but is there any, any kind of comorbidities that stand out that you would rule out a forehead flap for someone? Uh, that's a good question. So yeah, I mean, let's go back. We'll say on age. So with age, there isn't anything. Um, the literature is not real firm on this issue about what age that you should, can or should do it. The obvious question is, you know, what about, will it grow? You know, my limited experience because they, these, they don't come up that all that often, um, is that, uh, I've, I've had, I've had a very good experience with watching them as they grow. And so I have been pleased with that. But on, on the other hand, uh, I still am going to want to wait until the nose is reasonably well formed. So this is a very much an editorial comment, but I would say for me, five to eight, five to seven years old, it'd probably be about where I'm going to be, you know, considering that. 
um, because it's it's not you know it's not an adult nose by no by no means, but it's pretty well formed at that point. And um, so as far as contraindications, though, you know I think uh, they they obviously it's somebody who's going to have to be able to tolerate a couple of surgeries. There's going to be two or three or you know perhaps more if there's touch ups. They can be done under sedation, uh, MAC, um, a light MAC, even local with you know with some light sedation if need be. Uh, there, you know, again, there's, there, there's skin operations really for the most part. I mean, there's, you know, it's a skin muscle if you include the nasalis or the frontalis, I mean, but, um, you know, you can block that, uh, that area really well. And, you know, the most surgeons do it all the time. So I think if you have to consider, can they sit still, can they be, you know, somebody who's, they have to be like, so an awake person who has very, very bad, you know, back problems that might be a problem to, to just lay still that period of time, you know, and all the other usual medical, um, you know, contraindications that, that one might have if you're going to plan on using general anesthetic. Yeah, that's helpful. So let's say we found the perfect patient and now we're heading to the operating room. Will you walk us through your markings and then take us through some of the tips you have for elevating this flap? Um, you may be discussing the base width of the pedicle and your pivot point for this flap. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll cut to the chase on some of the, some of the key points that I think, first of all, it's fine in the pedicle. Nick said that, you know, you can typically find it just by the landmarks and then by Dopplering it. It often Dopplers really easily at the proximal part, you know, just near the brow. Um, but it has a very kind of a circuitous course and you can, you tend to lose a little bit. So it takes a little bit of time, but if, um, if you're patient with it, you'll be able to map it out to the mid or upper forehead. It's just not super simple. Like sometimes you just, you lose it. So stick with it is my point. Um, once you get a general idea of what the course is, if you get two points, if you get the one at the brow and maybe one, maybe a third of the way up, um, you can basically figure that that's a vector and it's going to follow that line. It's not going to make some abrupt, you know, change in course. And so you can basically follow that line and, and center your, um, your template on that. That leads to the next question. What do you use for templating? So templating is actually probably one of the more important steps in training. I actually did a couple of these cases with Gary Burgett. And he spent like an ungodly amount of time uh, making the template. Uh, and then I can remember distinctly on one instance where he spent an ungodly amount of time making the template uh, and then crumpled it up. And I, my heart sank. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to be here another hour. So uh, the template is pretty important. Um, he used foil. Most people do. There's, I've, I've seen some folks use very thin thermoplastic, which is the material we use to make nasal splints um, you know, for in rhinoplasty. You can get thin thermoplast where if you warm it, it becomes very flexible. You can form it onto the nose and then, um, you know, you then template it and then you heat it again and then it becomes flat again, which is really cool. So um, that's a cool material, but, but foil is most common. I tend to make the template the same size as the defect. I don't try to go like more or less. I really do try to keep it about, about the same as what, as what the defect is. When you, put, when you apply it onto the forehead, you're going to be mindful about uh, the pivot point and, and the amount of length you have. If someone has a short forehead, meaning the hairline is low it, and you need to get down to a columella, that might be tough. So that's a scenario where you're going to have to potentially come back at a later point and then do some, you know, taking away the follicles later on, because you may end up with some follicles on the columella. Another issue that comes up is, okay, what about the scenario when you need it to go distally and it's going to pull the nose it, it, it's going to be a bit short and it's going to, and it's like, it's as if it's going to pull the nose up, you can get away with that because when you divide the pedicle, um, it's going to, in, in most instances, it will drop back. Um, you know, it'll fall back down. So just cause it's pulling up while the pedicles attached doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. So that's a couple of things. Low, low forehead or low hairline is a scenario you need to know about. Can you turn the flap? Like, let's say, can you, 
pivot off of the axis, that vector we talked about in order to avoid the hairline? I believe you can. Um, I think you can safely do that, you know, anywhere from 10, 20 degrees. Um, you have to focus, the pedicle has to still stay in the main portion, you know, the thin portion of the flap, but you can kind of um, turn the other portion of it away a little bit. Um, and you can get away with that to allow you to avoid uh, that, the, the follicles again, being, you know, it's something where you just have to be careful. So that's low hairline. Uh, that gets to the next one. I'm talking about vascularity. Uh, as you're raising it, do you, do you, or don't you use local? You're going to talk to different uh, practicing surgeons who may feel differently on this one too. I will put a small amount of local in the periphery around the flap, not, not, at, not in the flap, not, you know, not even really exactly near it. And I put it in the forehead sort of surrounding it so that I get a block um, without really getting the vasoconstriction in and around the pedicle, because once the thing is lit, is elevated and it looks white, I don't want to sit there and question that. Um, it's just too stressful for me, but some people just, you know, routinely use local and they use it fairly liberally and we'll tell you, they'll tell you that it's okay. In the elevation stages, um, I am one, the next, another question that comes up is, do you elevate everything in the same full thickness or do you vary the thickness as you're going in order to have a thinner part, you know, at the distal portion and so on? Um, again, I'm a conservative person and, you know, as, as many of the folks that are listening to the podcast, you know, are, are learners, my suggestion would be stay, start off as a conservative surgeon, just because someone else can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should right away try to, you know, flex your muscles later, raise it in the, in, a, in the same thickness, starting from distal to proximal. So you're working at the distal end. And at that point, you'll probably be subgaleal or subfrontalis, depending on how close the hairline you are. If you're at the hairline, it'll already be galia. If you're in, you know, along the forehead, it'll be frontalis. And you stay in that same nice areolar plane as you know, the whole way down. Um, and as it's reflected, it, it's a really fast dissection in that areolar plane. You reflect it down as you get close to the superorbital rim. I'm sure you all read this. You are, that's when you're going to make a, a plane transition in order to protect uh, the pedicle. The pedicle is coming out under the rim. Here's another point. It isn't like the superorbital. It doesn't come out of foramen. It's coming out under the rim. So you can reflect it over the rim. That means that you can get almost a centimeter and a half of additional length if you just cut, um, if you cut the flap on the brow and on the rim, getting under it, which you can eat freely do. It gives you a centimeter and a half of additional length just from doing that. And it'll basically fall right, fall right down. The plane transition I mentioned is um, if everything else is done subgalia subfrontalis, right as you get about a centimeter or so above the superorbital rim, you can make a cut in the periosteum using like a Colorado tip or something like that, and then go subperiosteal as you reflect it over the rim. So I'll say it again, subperiosteal as you go over the rim and you can go as low as you need. And, the, and, you, and you, you won't necessarily, you're not going to even see the pedicle. It'll be Dopplerable easily in, in there, but you, you certainly won't hurt it. Those are a couple of things. Oh, and you talked about the width, you know, I mean, 10 to 12 millimeters is, is pretty much, you know, the standard width for, for a flap. And I think maybe other, maybe other people might feel differently. I think that's the most common answer. Certainly good enough for the boards. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the defect, you know, the donor, the defect, you know, you're going to elevate everything in the subgalia subfrontalis plane really, really widely, um, yada, yada, you know, small defects, healing secondarily, blah, blah, like you all know that put in a bolt, put on a bolster and, and, and you can just treat it that way. So Dr. Marcus, you mentioned that, you know, you like to elevate, uh, the entire flap in, in the same plane until you get to that, that periosteal portion. Um, 
So are you then thinning the flap during the primary operation after you have elevated it? Or do you prefer, you know, a, a three-stage approach where you inset the entire flap, come back later and do some thinning? There was a really good article I read recently on this topic. Oh yeah, you wrote that. Um, <laughs> so the two-stage or three-stage, yeah. Um, it actually is, your article is really good. Actually, you went through and, and, and went through all the literature and, and tried to find where the advantages and disadvantages are because people feel, so, they feel very passionately about this question, but yet there's not a whole lot of substance to really tell you which one's better. I don't think. I think that's more or less what we concluded. They have advantages and disadvantages. I'm a three-stage kind of a person because I already told you I'm conservative. So I'm going to take, I'm going to lift it in the full thick, in full thickness. I'm going to put it down. I know it's going to look a little thicker in, at the tip than I want. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to do as, you know, as um, uh, Dr. Manick does, you know, I'm going to elevate in, a, in the next stage and thin, you know, thin the, uh, the tip. At which point, one of the things that he teaches that is, I think, really important is that if your initial incisions and scars at the first operation weren't exactly where you want them and you're going back to do, you know, the second operation, you can actually shift them a bit and um, it, they'll, they will be viable. So you can move them a couple of millimeters in one direction or another because the geometry might be better. Hard for me to explain in words, but um, maybe easier to see. So I like doing that. Um, I'll thin it, stays, it stays attached. Um, you can actually be you know, fairly uh, thorough, aggressive, I guess, about that. Um, and then put it back down. So I'm, I'm a three-stager. And at what point in these stages are you using spy and geography? trying to remember if I have, to be honest with you, I think that if I didn't, you know, like in a scenario, like the only times I've gotten nervous is when I used, there was a time when I did use local and, you know, I'd see a flap that looked rather pale and I might've spied one in that case. I think anytime anybody wants to use a spy, they wouldn't be wrong. You know, I mean, it's a very helpful tool, but most that's of the time, something that you routinely feel like you need to do. You know, most of the time the flaps, like I can, you know, they're, 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 you know, overtly clinically viable. So, yeah. It's pretty robust. I'm trying to think if there were some other things that have come up. I mean, there there's so many little nuances, you know, to uh, to the forehead flap. I think that just going back again, you know, one key about you know coming over the brow, cutting through the brow in order to get that extra length. Just remember that you know that's all going to get it is going to get put back. So I know people get kind of antsy about going through the brow, but it's 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 really a key move to get you you know that that additional bit of length. And so when you're doing like you know, how do you, how do you figure out like the, um, whether or not you have, you know, the length that you need, you know, for the, for the rotation, you know, often people will take like a hemostat and a silk suture and they'll hold it at where they think the origin of the supertrochlear is. And then they'll take that down to the distal end of wherever the defect is. And then they can use that, that, that strand of silk to then transpose it up. And that shows you more or less where the flap needs to be. So that is, that's true, but it doesn't necessarily take into account that extra little bit that you can get. And so, um, going back to the first part about like, when you have a hairline, that's kind of low, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, you can basically, you know, if, if you look at it, really, you can base it in the ideal position, avoid that hairline. And in that case, you may be going through the brow to get that extra length that you needed. Great. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, timing between stages, how long you're waiting between, uh, you know, elevating the flap, putting it back down, thinning, dividing the pedicle. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for me, like if I'm going to do it for thinning, I'm going to come back at two to three weeks. And it's not that I feel that one or the other is better. It's just whatever works on the schedule. Um, if it's closer to two, I'm going to put a pen rose around the, the base of the flap with a hemostat in the holding area, just to kind of tighten it up and make sure that everything looks fine. If it goes pale, then it probably um, you know, it could be a problem. I mean, this is at the time of division, not, not so much. So when you're leaving it attached at the, at a second stage, then 
you know, you're pretty safe at that point. You can just do it on your schedule. So two to three weeks later. Um, and then, you know, for the division, um, you know, you then again, another two to three weeks is what I would do. And I check it with just with the Penrose and I have yet to have one cancel, you know, where I had to cancel it. So I know a lot of us do that and that's the teaching. I, I guess something that I read about a lot, I haven't seen one, but I was wondering, do you ever use uh, like a three stage four o'clock where you're using uh, uh, like a folded flap for nasal lining? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the, the lining, the lining issue, yeah, that comes up a lot. Um, you know, there's, are there, in, you know, are there intranasal, you know, adjacent tissue transfers or flaps that you can use for lining? Yes. But the one area where they don't work so well is right at the, you know, the entrite, you know, the entry, sort of the nostril or the um, external valve. And it's hard to really find tissue that works well for that. And although it looks bulky and weird at first, which makes people a little bit edgy about it, but turning over the forehead flap inward to provide that portion of the lining works very well. Um, but it is something that you're going to have to thin out at the later stage. And that is exactly the point I was like making when I said, you know, when, when the, when the, when the incision or scar isn't placed exactly where you want it. So let's say you have the flap folded to make the nostril, um, you know, right along the alar rim and it's this big fat thing, right? It looks terrible. So you make your incision right on the rim, right on the edge, even though the original incisions on the inside, the original scars on the inside, you're making a new incision right where you, not where it is, but where you want it to be. And that way, when you, you can lift the, you lift the tip up, you defat that, then you defat the downside as well. And then you have this perfect, you know, placement of where you would have wanted the, the incision to be. So in other words, you're not, you're not unfolding it, thinning it and refolding it back in. Cartilage grafting is another good, you know, question too about, you know, with these things. So, you know, of course, you know, lining, you know, support and, and skin coverage, those things are all important. There's a lot of, like, there's you know, a number of permutations around, you know, cartilage grafting too. You know, the basic just in that one is that you just have to make sure that you have, um, you have to have lining and skin at the time that you're doing that. And if either one's, you know, if either one's tenuous, I wouldn't be grafting at that point. So you pick the stage where you're going to be, where you feel as though you're going to be able to do that. Um, ideally, it would be nice to have that being done in the first. What, what's the major benefit of grafting during the first stage versus the second stage where you're already re-elevating the flap? Contractor. So if, if, you, if, you lack, if you're lacking structural support, and that doesn't mean that all types of grafting are best to be done first, because some types of grafting don't, some, you know, some situations don't demand, you know, rigid structure. You're not, you may not get a whole lot of contracture depending how big whatever defect is that you're doing. But if you really are lacking support, it's you don't want to have to fight against all of the forces that, of contracture that are that are going to be present because then you you know you you'll go through all of these stages and and end up with you know something that you're not super proud of after all that work. Well, the main that was there, by the way. So the key is I think that on this one it's it's mostly about the lining because you know, you've got your, you know, your forehead flap is going to be there. You've got the outside. You just got to make sure you have a good plan on the lining. And that way you can, you can do your grafting at the same time. And, you know, what do you use? You know, there's septal cartilage, there's um, MTF allograft cartilage, which is processed, which is very popular now. Um, I use that. I think that it's, um, it works well. There's rib graft, of course, too, your autologous rib graft, and any of those um, are, are good options. Car concha cartilage, makes a very good um, ALA, like a, or a good lower lateral. Um, so you can make a really nice uh, lateral cruise with concha. So different, you know, there are different techniques for each area, I guess, of the nodes that you might be interested in. 
I, I could be wrong, but I, I could imagine that, especially when you're talking to uh, a, a child and uh, you know parents about this flap, it may be uh, a little disconcerting for them, you know, talking to them how we're going to rotate skin off the forehead. It's going to be connected for some time. They're going to go back and divide it. Um, is that something that you run into? Are those potentially difficult conversations? And if so, how do you navigate those? Oh, I mean, well, that's it. It's part of what you're asking too is just, you know, one of those general, what's the difference between taking care of kids and adults, because adults are much more um, understanding of things in general and, you know, just willing to accept things more at face value. And your you know, the conversations are not nearly as difficult uh, when you're thinking about trying to do a forehead flap and, you know, for a pediatric patient right at the gate, you know, this is going to be a long, this is going to be a long process. You're not going to be making that decision the first time you met, you meet them. So don't pretend, you know, don't, don't put, don't tell them that they need to make a decision when you first meet them. You tell them what the problem is. You try to explain, you know, what it's like, you know, you say, have you ever even looked, have you, you know, and of course you inquire, what have you looked at? Do you, what do you know already? What have you, what have you done research on? What have you seen? Cause if you're coming at them, you know, like with this crazy elephant trunk on the face thing, and you're going to be like, it's going to be great. Like, let's sign up now. Um, you know, Bye. that's not going to. That's yeah, it's going to be a very harsh goodbye, but so you get, a, you try to gauge what they know already. And then you riff off of that and you say, okay, well then, well, there's another thing if they didn't get to, you say, well, here's another thing. You're going to think I'm crazy, but this is something that's been done for a really, really long time with success. And then you're going to need to probably end up showing them some pictures. So the process, and you're not, and you're going to meet with them at least, you know, you might even meet with them like two, three, up to three times before you even um, do this. And that's just something you got to commit to. You know that going in. It's different because like somebody comes in who just got a big chunk of their nose taken off at the Mohs surgeon and they meet you and they're like, I've got this big hole in my nose, Doc. Mm -hmm. um, I've got this, the solution. It's I'm going to put your forehead on it. Okay. <laughs> Sounds better than what I've got. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the pediatric problems are not, you know, cause they're not the same, you know, they, they're not coming in after just having, you know, half their nose taken off by a Mohs surgeon. It's usually things like, you know, they had a horrible vascular malformation that led to tissue necrosis healed secondarily, and they've got some scarred nose. Dog bite took off half of the nose, or but it all but these things happened a long time ago, and so they've been living with whatever the problem or condition is for a while, and they're going to be very very careful about making those decisions, and they'll take their time, and you know rightfully so, and you know if they may get other opinions, which you know I always encourage that, um, you know if they feel comfortable. And one of the most recent ones I took care of was a. Uh, uh, a pediatric patient who actually had just seen, you know, he had they had just seen Dr. Menick and they didn't tell me at first. And I came up with this big, long plan about what I thought we would need to do. And they handed me the letter from Dr. Menick and had the same plan. And they're like, <laughs> you know, so that was, you know, that was for me, was reassuring. At least I'm, you know, at least they came up with something smart. <laughs> That's definitely a good company. Well, that was wonderful, Dr. Marcus. We uh, don't get to see a ton of these in residency. So thank you for walking us through that. I feel like we need to find one now that we can uh, go do together. Yeah, let's go. Let's go well, find one. Hopefully in the next two and a half weeks while Hannah and I are still on service. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go trolling outside the dermatology clinic. How about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, we'll go collecting people that we're, you know, we, we have a great idea for you. <laughs> like, where'd that patient go? Oh, don't yeah. worry about it. You're going to love it. <laughs> well, thank you guys. And again, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. Thanks a lot. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. 
To learn more, visit naturellsurgeon.com.